Hello and welcome to Last Week 100 Years Ago, the podcast where we bring you the hottest news from last week 100 years ago. I'm Michael Karch. And I'm Isaac Smith. And today we'll be trying to answer the question, what could Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound do for you? The answer will shock you. (laughs) But before we get to that, we're going to start off with human interest. Human interest. Our first article comes from the Galveston Daily News in Texas, Saturday, April 30th, 1921. And it reads, Prisoner had never heard of Prohibition Act until jailed on hooch charge. So (laughs) so (laughs) this man, George... Uh, I'm going to butcher his last name. George Prizabilski. Prizabilski. George Prizabilski had never heard of prohibition until he was brought before a federal judge on a charge of manufacturing illicit whiskey. When he was told about prohibition, he just said, and this is a quote, what? You can't make whiskey anymore? And the judge was just like, no. And then the dude says, You're kidding me. Why, I see all about this still in my newspaper, and I bought one in this store down the street, and my doctor says I should drink it, and everybody at my house makes hooch. So he just ratted everyone out. So the judge was like, okay, we're going to postpone this hearing, and we're going to issue subpoenas for the owner of the newspaper and the (laughs) store. And (laughs) I I didn't find anything else, but he just ratted everyone out. Oh my god! I mean, it it worked. It, I don't think he was charged again because he was just buying it, I guess. And everyone, you know, there were bigger fish in the sea. <laughs> I I could totally see myself for that guy's shoes. Wait, what, what do you, what do you mean it's not legal? Like why? I, it, playing dumb works <laughs> in this case. So I got a human interest story that I absolutely love. It comes from the Hamilton Journal, Thursday, April twenty eighth of nineteen twenty one. The title of the article is, Appleman says his wife vamped them all in Chicago. They were married here. So before we go into the article, we have to explain what does vamp mean or what does vamped mean? So it was a slang term that in the 1920s was used to describe a attractive and dangerously flirtatious woman. And you could use it as a verb, which... To like you vamped him, which means you flirted, teased, or seduced him. So hashtag when this, bring back vamp. <laughs> so when this article's title says Appleman says his wife vamped them all in Chicago, they're saying my wife flirted, teased, and seduced them all in Chicago. Oh, oh no. <laughs> so the very first line of this article reads. Miss Margaret Appleman was today recorded among the tombs or tomes of the circuit court as Chicago's champion vamp. They pretty much said in this article. That's a little dicey. The circuit court, the court system that handles divorce and everything, pretty much put in record. This is Chicago's champion whore. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Oh, so that's not good. Miss Margaret Appleman's husband, Jacob Appleman, uh, is divorcing her, and her husband's attorney filed a bill for divorce, and the attorney accused Miss Margaret of, quote, being acquainted with a considerable portion of the male population in the city. They got married five years ago in April 1915, and for six years, the husband lived in, quote, total blissful ignorance. The husband... (laughs) That's a quote? 
<laughs> the the husband, I don't know what his job was, but I'm assuming he left a lot because the next thing they say is in February, after Jacob left the city to fill a Vanderville engagement, his wife started out to vamp and lure every victim she could discover on the street, on the L train, on the streetcars, in the automobiles, and she was imminently successful in doing so. <laughs> I love how they describe the people she seduced as being victims. Like, oh no, she got me too. I also love how long this article is. It's not just like some woman cheated on this guy. They're really going into detail of what she did, where she was, how she seduced these men. He found out that she was vamping people when he got a letter. Because normally she would send letters all the time saying like, hey, I love you. You know, you're my, you're my perfect husband. And then finally she telegraphed him and said... She found a man whom she, quote, cared more for than anyone else in the world. And so after that, he divorced her. And that's the article. <laughs> that's it. So the article is basically just like, we want to talk mad shit about this woman. And and that's it. <laughs> if, if, you could, if you could describe it in like a TMZ article, it would be like, man divorces whore wife. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. I, I have a human interest article that is somewhat related. I guess it would be <laughs> a mistaken vamping, if I'm using that word correctly. It comes from The Appeal from St. Paul and Minneapolis, Minnesota, Saturday, April 30th, 1921. And the headline reads, Blind in eternal triangle, husband, wife, and alleged affinity, sightless all, men in battle royale. So there's a lot... There's a lot, a lot going in this That's in this a headline. lot to try <laughs> to <laughs> So first, affinity in this case, as after doing a lot of research, because this is not easily findable as to exactly what this means for someone who is not well-versed in legal terms. So it's basically the kinship relationship created or that exists between two people as a result of someone's marriage. So basically, the alleged affinity is a friend of the husband that the wife met. It's a husband, a wife, and the husband's friend is the way that I read it. And honestly, it, it doesn't matter too much. It's basically husband, wife, and some dude. <laughs> and here's the thing. The dude's name is Sam Stewart. They are all blind, legally blind. They cannot see. Is blind in eternal triangle, men in battle royale, sightless all, they're all blind. Martin Strone, the husband, comes home early one day because he was told by a friend that, quote, a rival was paying court to his wife. <laughs> Upon arrival, he finds Sam Stewart enjoying a chat with his wife in the living room. Then a fight broke out. Most of the furniture in the room was wrecked, but they didn't suffer any injuries because they couldn't see each other and therefore couldn't hit each other. And that's what the article says. <laughs> And so they go before this judge, and this judge is like, all right, I'm just going to put Sam Stewart in jail for a day, and that was it. Because it was just a misunderstanding between three blind people. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I, I love the idea where of him bursting into the room. Like, I'm assuming because, like, I mean, he can hear them talking, so he's going to know where he is. Right. But I love the idea that he hops in and points in maybe his direction. Is like, what are you doing talking And he's just pointing to, like, a corner of the room that no one's in. <laughs> as, as soon as the other guy says something, he moves his finger to, like, correct his direction. <laughs> Another human interest piece, my last one, comes from the Sacramento Bee on Monday, May 2nd, 1921. 
And it says, engineer predicts clear water will boom city. So the article is basically talking about this engineer, D.A. Elliott, who's making the, quote, daring prediction that more people will come to the city when the filtration plant is completed. And the article talks like it's the opinion of the engineer and not a fact that clean water will attract people to the city because, well, (laughs) wouldn't clean water attract people to your city? It was just it was just written in such it's not like a crazy article, but it's just written in such a way where it's like the opinion of this engineer is that clean water might help people. Get a load of this guy. He thinks people like clean water. <laughs> what you think you think everyone should just have clean water? You think it just comes out of faucets? International. I have an international article from The Appeal, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Saturday, April 30th, 1921. And it's very small. It's mostly just a photo, and then I'm going to read the caption. I'm going to show Mike the photo, and Mike will describe what he sees. And it says, some earrings. And it says, count them, 40 on each ear. It is one of the big customs of the Gary Phils tribe in India for warrior's widow to wear these unique earrings as a means of showing her sorrow. Now, I'll have Mike explain it soon, but this was a very small article. But what I found most interesting about it is when I looked it up, I found nothing. I found nothing about the Gary Fields tribe. I found nothing about this specific custom. And the only thing I found were other articles with this exact same photo talking about this. I just don't know if this is a real thing. So if you know something, shoot us a DM at last week 100 pod on Twitter and Instagram. And now I'm going to show Mike the photo. I am, I am so excited to see this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. All right. So some people, they have those rings in their ears. I forgot they're called like a lot of like rock gauges. Yeah. So some people have gauges. It looks like if someone decided, you know, I want the hole in my ear and then I'm going to put 40 rings, which are half the size of my skull on these earlobes, which get dragged down past my collarbones. <laughs> it is insane. Yeah. Her, her <laughs> earlobes, it's a because her earlobes are stretched all like all the way down to her collarbones, as you said. I don't think ears are supposed to do that. No, no. <laughs> I mean, the really interesting thing is I couldn't find anything. I really wanted to find something about this, but I really found nothing other than this exact thing in other newspapers during this week. I just keep staring at it. Like It feels like you could insert three fingers through the hole I think that you could fit is in her ear. <laughs> That is pretty crazy. (laughs) So I got one more international one. And this one takes place in Ireland. And I actually didn't know what was happening in Ireland at the time. I see a lot of articles on here talking about the police, you know, killing someone or, or some shots being fired. And it says the police. You're like, oh, no, police brutality. And then read the article and it says this happened in Ireland. You're like, oh. Okay, a little bit, little bit weird how they phrase it like that. And the title is Seven Killed by Police in Fighting. So to get some backstory of what was going on was Ireland at the time was actually fighting a war of independence that lasted until July 1921. It started in 1916 with an Easter uprising. So they had this national Republican army, which or Irish Republican army known as the IRA. So they tried to have an uprising to declare themselves as an independent country, and it got crushed immediately. So they resort to guerrilla warfare. And so this article is actually a snapshot of that guerrilla warfare that was happening in Ireland during the time. The article, it reads, seven persons were killed 
Sunday by the police and members of the military forces in clashes in counties Cork and Temporary. In an ambush of Crown forces in Kilderary, County Cork, two Irish Republicans, the IRA, were killed and five others captured, two of whom were wounded. There were no Crown casualties in the fightings, which lasted an hour and a half. A police patrol, which was fired upon from a house in Temporary, returned fire, killing two men. One of them, James Maloney, is said to be the son of P.J. Maloney, members of the British House of Commons from the South Division of Temporary. Three other fatalities occurred in minor clashes. So what's kind of interesting about this article is you can get like a snapshot of the Civil War happening. You can kind of imagine the patrol walking through the street, the the British patrol walking through the street, and then maybe from like a second story window of a, of a house, a, a shot's fired, and then they start exchanging fire back and forth, back and forth. And it, it wasn't until about two months later where they actually declared a ceasefire. So this is two months before the war ended, and it ended with the partition of Ireland. So if you look at a map today and you see how the Northern Ireland is actually part of the UK, it's because of this moment here. Oh, interesting. Because of the guerrilla warfare and the stopping of the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. The, the the British were pretty much losing the guerrilla war, so they wow. they, they they hightailed it out. I have I have one more international before we move to national. This one comes from the Boston Globe, Friday, April 29, 1921. And it says, $100 million bribe spurned by Schwab. Now remember, this is 1921, $100 million. German aim to block submarines, England's $150 million offer rejected too. So basically, during the war, Charles Schwab, the guy who owns Schwab, well, owns Schwab Banks, agreed to help produce 20 submarines for the British at an inflated price, which was in flagrant violation of the U.S. and international laws, but because of his connections and being a rich white male, was able to circumvent them. <laughs> But so what happened was apparently during World War One, Germany tried to bribe Schwab with $100 million to break submarine contracts with Lord Kitchener, who was the officer and colonial administrator. He had died at that time and Schwab and him were friends and that's how the deal was made, et cetera, et cetera. But then England was like, no, 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 no. We'll give you $150 million if you keep your contract. A, a bidding war for, for these submarine contracts? <laughs> for, for these submarine contracts. But both offers were spurned or rejected which was disclosed by Darwin P. Kingsley, president of the Chamber of Commerce in New York. Schwab apparently laughed and said, quote, Germany and England together had not enough money to make me break faith with Kitchener. So he just like laughed in the face of $150 million in 1921 dollars. That's absolutely insane. It is. He was a, a madman. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to national. This one is from the New York Times, Monday, April 25th, 1921. And the title is Boat Racing Train from Florida Here, G.A. Woods Cruiser on 41-Hour Schedule. So the article says, Garfield A. Wood, who's a wealthy sportsman, he was a lot more, but I'll get to that later, <laughs> is racing his 50-foot, 900-horsepower cabin cruiser in a race against the Havana Special, the fastest train of the Atlantic coastline from Miami to New York in a 1,240-mile dash. So he's in a speedboat and he's racing a train? Yes. He's in a speedboat and he's racing a train. That's awesome! <laughs> it gets awesomer. The first lap will be to Fernandina, Florida, with stops in North Carolina and Virginia along the way. But Wood was already, at this time, the winner of the Harmsworth Trophy, 
with his boat, Miss America, setting a pace of 79 miles an hour. For this trip, he set a 41-hour schedule, which means he'll have to maintain an average of 30 miles an hour in hopes to beat the train by three hours. And he's going to be using around 700 gallons of gasoline, which at that time cost $1,000, around $14,700 today. But what's so interesting is Garfield himself, nicknamed Garwood, So Garwood, this man, he wasn't just a rich motorboat racer, although he was. He was an inventor, too, and like a really smart guy. He was the first person to travel over 100 miles per hour on water. In 1911, at age 31, he invented a hydraulic lift to unload coal from rail trucks. He also started companies that built truck bodies, tractor attachments, and winches to be used by trucks. But the question you're wondering is, did he win? And yes, he did by 22 minutes. What? By 22 minutes, he beat that train. And he would go on to race many more times, but retired in 1933 to focus on his business. And he was eventually inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America in 1990. This guy just, without a suit of armor, like could fly and, and fire missiles and everything. He reminds me of like Tony Stark from Marvel. This he is, guy's he is crazy. the boating Iron Man of the <laughs> 1920s, for sure. <laughs> So I got one national article, and this one was just like the earlier international article I read, where it started off as a very small snippet, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized this small paragraph had huge depth to it. The article is called Supreme Court Gives Decision Against Cherokee Nation Claims, and it is a very, very tiny article, and it reads... Washington, May 2nd. The Supreme Court refused today to permit John M. Taylor as representative of the Eastern Immigrant Cherokees to intervene in the Red River Oil case. Taylor claimed that large tracts of the territory in dispute was the property of his clients, the Cherokees, by reasons of a 14 million acre grant made by President Van Vieren, who today we know as Van Vieren. So we need some backstory to figure out what they're actually talking about. And the backstory of it was that Texas and Oklahoma, they've had a border dispute since they were first owned by the Spanish and then the French and then were territories. And then they didn't figure out how to settle their dispute, which was on the Red River, until about 1819. The problem with the river is that it changes a lot. It's it's not fixed. So in 1819, they found this old map and some guy was like, hey, we found this old map. It's close enough. The border is this. And that was fine until 100 years later when an oil man discovered that there was oil underneath the Red River. So he started drilling it on the Texas side and then he started drilling it inside of the river. But the Oklahoma side, they said to themselves, hey, that oil runs underneath Oklahoma as well. So it's our wells, too. We deserve royalties from that. So that's how the court case started, Oklahoma v. Texas. So this is all well and good. And then enter John M. Taylor. He represents the Cherokee Nation, which wants to intervene in the case. I don't know why exactly John has to represent them. Maybe it's a weird thing that the Cherokees couldn't represent themselves. I honestly don't know. I assume it's maybe because it's a state issue or state land. Yeah, I don't know why the Cherokee Nation can't send their own representative, but they go to John M. Taylor. And we have to ask ourselves, why do the Cherokee Nation want to intervene in this Oklahoma-Texas case? Well, they found a document from one of their elders that died. And that document was signed by President Van Vuren in 1838. The patent gave the Cherokee Nation tracts of land 
of about 500 miles through the panhandle to the Cherokee Nation. And they were to get this land for, quote, forever. This land was given to them 500 miles. To give you an example of how large 500 miles it is, it includes Tulsa, Oklahoma. It includes Oklahoma City. And if you were to go from Tulsa, Oklahoma into parts of Texas, it goes all the way down to almost Austin, Texas. Wow. From Tulsa, Oklahoma to Austin, it's 450 miles. And the Cherokees rightfully own all that land. They had a signed document from President Van Vuren in 1838 saying they owned that land forever. To give you another example, from Los Angeles to San Francisco, that's not even 400 miles. That's like 300 something. Oh, wow. So they owned pretty much all of Oklahoma and Texas. And so... They want to intervene in the case saying it doesn't matter that Texas and Oklahoma are arguing who gets the land because we technically own it. They don't. And we have a document signed by a president of the United States saying this is our land. But the court case looks at this and they say, uh, you know what? Um, John M. Taylor actually can't represent you. Uh, so for whatever reason, uh, you're not involved in this. Uh, you can go away now. We're going to talk about and decide who gets the oil. Oh, fuck that. The only way I found out all this information was from another article written in a newspaper from Crescent City, California in April 15th, 1921. Whenever I Googled Oklahoma v. Texas, Red River Oil, Cherokee Nation, John M. Taylor, all that specific stuff, nothing was mentioned about the Cherokees. Absolutely nothing in any source of that Supreme Court case. It was only from this other article written in 1921 where I found anything mentioned about the Cherokees, which described pretty much what I just described to you, that they found this old document saying, we own this land. And then the Supreme Court said, uh, this guy can't represent you. Uh, go away now. Thank you. And that's why today when that's you look... terrible. Right. So that's why when you look at a map today where the Cherokee Nation's borders are, that's why they're like that instead of owning pretty much all of Oklahoma and Texas all the way down to Austin. This is just another case of things I wish I learned in school and should be taught in school because these kinds of things, because it kind of puts the country in a bad light. They obviously don't want everyone knowing. Well, that's the thing. Unless you were specifically looking for this and you actually had the newspaper articles that we were reading, I don't see how anyone could have ever even found out about this. Wow. That's crazy. Absolutely. It's safe. That's from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Austin, Texas. That's only 450 miles. That's a huge swath of land. I wonder if the Cherokees still have that document. In the Crescent City, California article, there was, and they verified that it was a legit document. It was a legit land grant. One of the lawyers said, this is foolproof, except if they were to try and argue a statute of limitation. A statute of limitation pretty much means you have a fixed amount of time until you can declare a court case. Say we got into a brawl and I punched someone in the face, and then 10 years later, they won't sue me for punching them in the face. Well, that was 10 years ago, bro. Sorry. Statues of limitation, you should have sued me right then and there. I feel like there shouldn't be a statute of limitations on something that a president signed and gave to them. <laughs> And said, this is yours forever. And then the government later is just like, ah, fuck you guys. It's mine <laughs> now. Because we have power. Exactly. So that's why the guy is saying, this is foolproof unless they try to argue that. Which I don't think they argue that. Because in the other article I read, they just said John M. Taylor can't represent them. And that's how they shut them down. Wow. When I was researching this, I found that other article. My jaw dropped. I was like, 
No fucking way. That's great. I mean, they need to start a petition today to get that land back. From the U.S. government's perspective, there, I could see how someone in there would think, uh, you know, technically they're right, but there's no way we're going to give up all of our cities and land. Like, that's just not going to happen. No, but there's got to be some form of reparations that they can get. Yeah, the, it's the equivalent of whatever that land is worth or, or The equivalent or of 500 miles of land. Five, uh, probably <laughs> a lot. <laughs> in, including the oil fields that were there. Right, right. Well, switching to our last article in advertisements. Advertisements. So this article comes from the Miami Daily Record Herald, Miami, Oklahoma, not Miami, Florida, Sunday, May 1st, 1921. And in this one, we'll give you the answer to what happens when you take Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound. (laughs) What happens? So I'll tell you. So this is a testimonial by Mrs. Elizabeth Smart, and I'm just going to read it. It's not too long, and I think it kind of speaks for itself. I had anemia from the time I was 16 years old and was very irregular. If I did any house cleaning or washing, I would faint and have to be put to bed. My husband, thinking every minute was my last. After reading your textbook for women, I took Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound and used the sanative wash and have never felt better than I have the last two years. I can work, eat, sleep, and feel as strong as can be. Doctors told me I could never have children. I was too weak. But after taking vegetable compound, it strengthened me, so I gave birth to an eight-pound boy. I was well at the time did all my work up to the last day, and had a natural birth. Everybody who knew me was surprised, and when they asked me what made me strong, I tell them with great pleasure, I took Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound and never felt better in my life. So this is like, it's not supposed to be an ad, it's not labeled as an ad, but this is an ad for Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable (laughs) compound. (laughs) And I doubt this story is real. And there is also a picture of Mrs. Elizabeth Smart I doubt it's really Mrs. Elizabeth Smart. I want to know what her diet was. Like, did she eat nothing but cheese her whole life and, and never had a vegetable? Or? No, she took Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound and used the sanative wash, and that's all she needs. You know, sometimes my hip hurts, and so I wonder if I took Miss E. Pinkham's vegetable compound, if that would help cure my sore hip. Maybe with the sanative wash, yeah, it might. <laughs> What is the sanitive wash? Is that what you use to wash your hands? I don't know. I have no idea what sanitive wash is. Here, I'll I'll look it up. Okay, so a quick Google. The first result. I just Googled sanitive wash, and it says, Lydia E. Pinkham's sanitive wash. No way. And this is from the National Museum of American History. So Lydia E. Pinkham had a medicine company. I'll read the description. And you just Googled this. Like, I this just Googled prepared. this. This was the first result. <laughs> Description. The indications or uses for this product is provided on its packaging. Directions for using the sanitive wash. Steep one-fourth of the package in sufficient water to make one pint after it is strained. When the discharge is very profuse, use one half of this, adding to it one pint of warm water daily as a vaginal injection. Oh, okay, so it's like vaginal cream to help women produce. So it can't help my hip, is what you're saying. I mean, it could. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> tested it. Maybe maybe it could. But that Wait, makes it, a is, lot more sense now after Googling that. Is it still a company? Is it still around? Or was that just, it literally just described her 1921 company? No, it's, it's not still around. So Lydia Pinkham herself, she died in 1883, but she was an American inventor and marketer of herbal alcoholic women's tonic for menstrual and menopausal problems. So she was a business person slash inventor slash probably 
beginner of the first pyramid schemes, it seems. To kind of spin it, I guess, I mean, for that time, I mean, to be a woman inventor and businessman, that's kind of a huge accomplishment in itself for, oh, for no, the that, time. That's an amazing accomplishment. It's just, I get a bad vibe from the testimonial <laughs> in that newspaper. <laughs> I'm sure the products were great, but it does remind me a little bit of those MLM marketing schemes, which is like, if you subscribe to my package, I promise you too will be rich in 30 days. <laughs> Use my essential oils and they'll cure all of your problems, you know? <laughs> What's your problem? Sore hip. Cured! <laughs> That's it. All you need, Mike, is Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound and sanitive wash, maybe. You can try it. <laughs> and you'll never feel better in your life. Well, thank you all for joining us on last week, 100 years ago. We hope that you tune in to our next episode and, you know, have a great rest of the day. Last week, 100 Years Ago is created by Isaac Smith. This episode produced by Michael Karch and Isaac Smith. Editing by Michael Karch. Additional editing and sound mixing by Jeremy Zussman. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for clippings of these articles and more at Last Week 100 Pod. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time.